you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open to Matthew chapter 12 today. And if you need a Bible, raise your hand. We'll make sure you get one. Appreciate the, uh, the work that our ushers do. A lot of unheralded work. They always make sure we get our note sheets and our pencils and our Bibles. So thank you again, guys, for being available to direct people and provide for them the resources they need so that we can be uh, diligent in studying God's Word together. If you were not here last week, we uh, made an announcement about a slight change we're making in our children's church program. So I just want to reiterate that for you. We've had a lot of uh, new children coming in first service Sunday school, and uh, that's a wonderful um, challenge because our classrooms are becoming too full. And so we've decided to go back to a model that we were using a little bit um, in the past, where second service, we're going to have a special dedicated fourth and fifth grade class that Miss Jill is going to teach, and that's going to meet in the uh, upstairs classrooms uh, uh, during second service. Uh, if you're here during first and second service, then we're going to ask that your, uh, your children would be with you if they are fourth and fifth graders, that they would come into service with you during first service and that they would go to the special class for fourth and fifth graders during the second service. That will relieve a little bit of the pressure that we've been having in first service. Our classroom's been so full. And again, that's a huge blessing. We pray that God would bring even more students to us. But we're constantly uh, aware that we sometimes need to make adjustments so that we can accommodate all these families that have been joining us. So continue to pray that, uh, that God would provide for us the workers we need to do a diligent job of teaching our kids how to grow in faith and to, to know the Word of God so that hopefully one day they'll put their faith and trust in Him. All right, so we've got our Bibles in Matthew chapter 12 today. Um, these buildings that we use as our church facilities are a huge blessing to us. We're so very grateful uh, that we own this property and that we have uh, these facilities that we can fill, people, uh, fill with people that we might share with them the, the grace of Jesus Christ. But the reality is that they were built a very long time ago. And truth be told, when people put these structures together, uh, the parsonage, the sanctuary, the children's church building, and the fellowship hall, uh, they made an effort to connect all of them with conduit that would allow us to run power lines and cables from building to building. But we have, we have to be very selective in what we run through those conduits because back in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s, there was no way for those who designed the building and laid out all that pipe to, to have any sort of a, an idea of what we were going to want to try to run from building to building uh, so many years down the road. These days, we not only want power and phone lines, but we also want Cat5 cable, the possibility for optic, uh, fiber optics for, for data transfer. We, we need uh, stuff for security. So there's all these different things we have to think about, and we just don't have enough space because when they built this building, those things weren't even in their minds. And so the conduit we have is very small, and that's made it challenging for us to decide how do we connect these buildings without digging everything up and starting all over again. Unfortunately, we just didn't have the, the, the foresight when these things were built back in the 50s and 60s to know what we needed today. But when it comes to God's Word, the author of the book doesn't have that problem. The Lord God is the one who inspired the creation of this wonderful testimony. And so God sees the beginning and the end simultaneously. We're, not, um, we're, going, to, we're going to see today how an event that was recorded way back in the 8th century B.C., it was not only created to make an impression on the people that God wanted to affect in that day and age, but God made that story in such a way that it would have a lasting impact and a further impact on the church in the, the current day today. And in a sense, he made the story with a lot of extra bandwidth. So not only would it be relevant to the people of the time, but today we can look back at that story and see how it also pointed forward to the further revelation that we have as the New Testament church. 
So we've got our Bibles open to Matthew chapter 12, and we're going to see this picture of the cross in the Old Testament today, but we're going to begin in Matthew 12 to see how Jesus uh, describes Jonah as a sign of the cross to come. We are looking in verses 38 through 42 today. God's word says this. And some of the scribes and Pharisees answered Jesus saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The scribes and the Pharisees, they come up to Jesus and, and they have a request for him. Teacher, they say, we wish to see a sign from you. Now, to be fair, the scribes and the Pharisees asked for a sign here, but they were apparently not the only ones who were seeking a sign. Look again at Jesus' response in verse 39. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. So Jesus is not just speaking to these scribes and Pharisees in his response. He addresses the generation of Israelites, who as a whole have put entirely too much focus upon the miraculous signs and wonders that Jesus Christ has been doing. What does this driving need for more signs and more wonders, what does it point to in the hearts of this generation? It points to an inherent lack of faith on their part. Apparently it was not enough that Jesus had been teaching them with a kind of authority and clarity that was unlike any of the other teachers of his day. It is apparently not enough that Jesus faced every public challenge that his opponents gave him with dignity. That he always had a perfect rebuttal for the traps that the scribes and the Pharisees tried to lay for him. He was always ready to respond. It would seem that the various details of Christ's life that so closely matched the signposts of the Old Testament scripture. They gave details about where the Messiah would be born and in what kind of circumstances and what kind of a life he would live. Apparently those were not enough evidence for them either. They wanted signs. They wanted some evidence from heaven that would conclusively seal the deal for them and prove to them that he was truly the Messiah that he claimed to be. <coughs> or maybe there was some ulterior motives to this request. Maybe they had no real intentions of believing regardless of the signs and wonders that Jesus may do. It's entirely possible here that these Pharisees and scribes are demanding a sign in hopes that Jesus would not be either willing or able to produce that sign and they could point and say, see, he's not really a man of God after all. You might have noticed that the ingenuine request that these scribes and Pharisees make comes shortly after these same people witnessed Jesus casting a demon out of a man earlier in chapter 12. <clears throat> Clearly, this was a supernatural sign and a display of divine power and authority on behalf of Jesus. And in response to him casting out this demon and freeing a man who was under affliction, the man who was a slave to this evil force, <clears throat> in response to that, the Pharisees and the scribes claimed that he had done it by the power of Satan himself. That's called blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, giving credit to the devil for the things that 
God has done miraculously through His Son, Jesus Christ. And it's the one offense that God chooses not to forgive. It demonstrated the utterly hard heart that refused to believe the things of truth that God was revealing in His sons. So these scribes and Pharisees and a good portion of the generation of Israel with them were not open to authentic proof. They had seen amazing signs, but they have already judged Jesus for themselves. They didn't believe because they didn't want to believe. <coughs> Let me make a, a bold statement here. <coughs> if you have heard the gospel of Jesus, if you've heard it preached in clarity, and you still do not believe in it, it's almost certainly not because you need that one more piece of biblical evidence. If you don't believe in the gospel that you have heard, it's almost certainly not because you need one more of your questions answered. It's not because you just need to see one more clear, supernatural sign from heaven. Friends, there will always be another question. There will always be some mystery to this great God who bids you to come and give your whole life to Him. There will always be room for more evidence about what He claims to be, more proof because ultimately the relationship that we are called to have with God is a relationship of faith. A relationship where He is the King. He is the one with knowledge and authority and we are the ones who trust Him on faith. And trusting Him on faith is, is not something that we are even able to do if the Holy Spirit is not doing a work in our hearts to fundamentally change the way that we see our sin and the way that we see this Savior that God has sent to overcome our sin. Knowing the hearts of this wicked generation were already hardened to Him. Jesus says in verse 39, But no sign will be given to this generation except the sign of the prophet Jonah. <clears throat> the only sign that He will provide for this wicked generation is the one that they already had the one that they had been given years and years earlier, the sign and the story of the prophet Jonah. Here Jesus personally identifies a type and a shadow that was cast in the Old Testament record that God had clearly intended to point forward to the crucifixion of God's Son. Now there is some danger that when we look into the Old Testament and we try to see how it points forward to Jesus Christ on the cross that some people will, will try to see Jesus in every single thing. They will over-allegorize the Old Testament. Now we can be certain and sure that a picture in the Old Testament is truly a shadow and a type of Christ when somebody in the New Testament points back and says that was meant to convey more than just the story that was originally understood to be. And that's what Jesus says here. The sign of Jodah, the story of Jodah becomes not just a historical event but also a sign that points forth and validates the work that Jesus will do on the cross. We're going to see today that there are two distinct parallels between Jonah's story and the crucifixion of Jesus. We'll address the most obvious of the two first. You can drink a water here. My voice is on the way out. <coughs> so the first of these two parallels is more obvious than the second. Just as Jonah spent three days in the belly of the fish, so too was Jesus laid to rest in the earth for three days. Turn with me for a moment to Jonah chapter 1. We're going to get some of the background of this story here. We won't work through every verse of this story, but I do want you to know where this sign of Jonah is coming from. So I want to share several verses from, 
the first couple of chapters of Jonah to help us grab the context of what's being taught, especially in this first parallel. Jonah 1, verses 1 through 3. It'll also be on the screen if you'd like to look up there. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their, their evil has come up before me. Nineveh was a Gentile city. It was not a, a Jewish settlement. It was a Gentile city that was the capital of a greater group of Gentiles named the Assyrians. And the Assyrians had a history with Israel. They were a ruthless and barbaric people who had many times wreaked havoc on God's chosen people. Verse 3, But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. Is it ever good when someone goes away from the presence of the Lord? Jonah, where are you going, buddy? What are you doing? You're headed in the wrong direction. I've got a map here in the slides to help you understand geographically what Jonah was trying to accomplish here. Giving a clear command by God to head northeast from Joppa to Nineveh, the prophet Jonah instead goes to the port. You can see that Joppa is a port town. There's much trade that goes in and out of that city. So there's plenty of boats available. And he says, how can I get as far away from here as possible? Oh, there's a boat to Tarshish. Instead of going 500 miles to the northeast, he decided to go 2,500 miles to the west. He wanted to get as far away from this calling as he possibly could. Why would Jonah do such a thing? Why would Jonah, who was a man of God, a man who had been listening to the voice of God, be so blatantly rebellious against the things that God had called him to do? Now, there's several reasons for Jonah's rebelliousness. First of all, the Ninevites were an exceedingly wicked people. They were a kind of empire that had designs on ruling as much of the known world as they possibly could. And they had no desire to do that diplomatically. Their way of ruling was with an iron fist. They had a great and mighty army, and that army was world famous for its ruthlessness. Now, we've heard of other empires in the course of examining Israel's history. We've talked about uh, the Sumerians. We've talked about the Egyptians. And in several different uh, instances, those empires would conquer a land, defeat an army, but then they would do all they could to try to bring the people of that culture into their own culture. We saw the Babylonians do that specifically. Not so with the Assyrians. When the Assyrians conquered a people, they took all they wanted from that culture and then they burned it to the ground. Their method was to kill everyone, man, woman, and child, in the conquered culture so that there would be no attempt to fight back later and to try to regain control of the territory. So they were notorious for slaughtering everyone they could in a battle, including civilians. And those who had fled away would have nothing to come back to because after they had pillaged, they would burn everything down to the ground. This is a ruthless and merciless people. The Ninevites were a political threat to Israel. They had done harm to them before and they very well could have been doing harm to them in the future. So Jonah has no desire to see this warring and terrible people sustained through the grace of God. Uh, you might read a little bit more about how bad the Assyrians had treated Israel. If you go back to Nahum, one of the minor prophets, 
chapter 3, you'll see almost a whole chapter of woe that the prophet pours out onto Assyria for the bad that they had done to Israel. Jonah did not forget this history. It was fresh in his mind. We don't know, but maybe Jonah had even lost some of his family to the ruthlessness of those Assyrian soldiers. Jonah wanted them punished. He wanted the Assyrians judged. But in his heart of hearts, there was a lingering fear. And that fear was this, that the God who had shown so much love and mercy and compassion to Israel might just show that same kind of love and mercy and compassion to this Gentile enemy nation. He did not want to see his preaching result in repentance. It's hard for me as a preacher to even wrap my brain around that because my whole heart is that preaching the gospel of Jesus would lead people to repentance and a stronger walk with him. But Jonah has such a hatred for these people in his own heart that he can't stand the thought of them hearing the truth and possibly turning from their sin and turning also from the destruction that God promised them if they did not repent. And so Jonah even admits in his own words in chapter 4 of Jonah, verse 2, the second half, he says, That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. He had a hunch that God might just try to save these Gentile people. So instead of seeing that, Jonah fled. He got on a boat and headed 2,500 miles away from Nineveh. But he did not get far. He did not fulfill that 2,500-mile journey. The ship set sail. And before too long, the Lord causes a mighty storm to assail the ship. This God that we have come to worship today is a God who has full dominion over the things that He has made. And with a word, He causes this mighty violent storm to come upon the, the waters where Jonah's boat is, is embarking. The mariners who are in charge of the boat are in a panic. They can see that the violence of this storm is seriously threatening to the integrity of the vessel that they're in. There's a real chance that none of them is going to make it out of the storm alive. And so they begin to throw cargo overboard. You can see how serious this is if they're throwing their cargo overboard. That's their whole livelihood. That's their whole reason they're making this journey. So if they're going to throw their cargo overboard to try to lighten the ship and cause it to come up out of the water a little more so it wouldn't take on so much overflow from the storm, then they're, they're really desperate. They throw the cargo overboard and it does nothing. In their desperation, they begin to offer up prayers and petitions to their various pagan gods. Apparently this is not a Jewish boat. Uh, this boat is, is full of people who worship various other quote-unquote gods who are not truly gods man-made religions that give them some sense of peace and hope when they're going through hardship that ease their minds. But as they pray to these gods that are not gods, of course, not one of them answers because not one of them is real. Eventually, in their desperation, looking around the boat, they find Jonah. And he's hiding away, asleep in the belly of the boat. And they demand that he wake up. Do you not know the danger that we are in right now? Pray to whatever god you worship and throw yourself at his feet. Ask that he ha might have mercy upon us or our boat is going to sink. Jonah comes clean to them. The storm, he admits, is his fault. He, he tells them that he worships the God of Israel, the God who, quote, make the land and the seas. And he has rebelled against this God by getting on their boat. 
and running away from the calling that he had placed on the prophet's life. He informs them that there's only one solution to the problem they find themselves in. They must toss Jonah overboard so that the storm will cease. Now, at first, to their credit, these pagan sailors can't bring themselves to do it. So they try to row back to, to shore, and that is a futile effort. They try with their manly strength to get out of the danger they have found themselves in, and it doesn't get them anywhere. And they quickly see the futility of their idea, and they're afraid. They're afraid to have the innocent blood of a man on their hands, but they're even more afraid to die a drowning death. So they ask Jonah's God to have mercy on them, and they throw him into the sea. And as soon as Jonah hits the water, the storm, which was so violent and overpowering, suddenly stops and calm overcomes the ship. There's some other fantastic details in the story that I can't address here for the sake of time. I would urge you to go back and read it this week in your quiet times and your, your times of devotion. But let's just say that the Ninevites are not the only Gentiles who get saved in the book of Jonah. Really interesting stuff going on here in chapter 1 and 2. So Jonah walks the plank. He's, the storm stops. The mariners are safe. But Jonah's adventure has just begun. Verse 17 of, of chapter 1. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. What do the guys on the ship think of Jonah? What do they think about his, his fate, his destiny? They think he's dead. They think he's a goner. Scripture doesn't tell us whether they saw him get swallowed by this great fish, but if they did, they think he's fish food. He's, he's history. Nobody gets swallowed by a fish and survives. If they didn't see the fish, then they do look out upon those still waters and they see that he's not there. So obviously he must have drowned. Obviously he is dead. For all that anyone knows, this rebel prophet has preached his last sermon. That's not God's plan. There's more to the story. This fish, and we don't know what kind of a fish it was. We don't know if it was a whale or something else. God could have very well in his power spoken into existence a special kind of fish just for this experience, just to deliver our man Jonah where he needed to go. Uh, there are those who have tried to find other historical stories of someone getting eaten by a giant fish, such as a sturgeon or a whale, and then being cut out of the fish after it was immediately harpooned and, and seeing that that person was able to survive for a short time in the stomach. But really, do we need another example to substantiate it? If we believe that the God of the universe speaks everything into existence, can he not overcome these circumstances to make sure that Jonah gets where he needs to go? God doesn't have to consult with the laws of nature and say, well, what can I work with here? God is the creator. He does what he wants to do. He speaks and things happen. That's the God we have come to worship today. And so after spending three days in the belly of this great sea creature, Jonah's unceremoniously burped out onto the shore. Now it's not the shore he started at. He's not in Joppa. This creature has burped him out on the shore that is closest to Nineveh. Nineveh was not a, a shoreline city, so he's still got a journey in front of him. But God has essentially sent a supernatural Uber to take Jonah where he needs to go. He is waterlogged but alive. It's a, an amazing prayer that he prays from the belly of this beast in chapter 2. But he has come to his knees and realized that he cannot fight the God of the universe. And so he picks his smelly self up and begins to trek his way across the land to Nineveh where he was called to go. 
This apparent death and that resulted in miraculous life would be echoed in the gruesome death of Jesus, in his three-day entombment, and in his miraculous resurrection on the third day. Now, as a side note, I don't want us to get too caught up on the three days and three nights thing. Some people read that and say that they see that Jesus would be in the tomb three days and three nights, and they say, is this a contradiction in Scripture? They think to themselves, well, I know that, let me do the math here, Jesus died on a Friday, He's in the tomb Friday, all of Saturday, and then the early part of Sunday, but then he rises from the grave. So he's not technically in the tomb for three nights, three days and two nights at the most. Is this a contradiction? And the Greek literature of the day commonly used this phrase structure, a day and a night, to describe a day-night period that didn't necessarily mean all the hours of the day. We do the same thing in the English literature. Let's say you're talking with your neighbor later on today and you ask him how they spent their weekend. And he says, well, my family spent uh, last Saturday at Disneyland. Now, does your mind immediately think, well, they must have gotten there at 12 a.m. in the morning and spent the entire 24-hour period at Disneyland and then as soon as the clock strikes midnight again, they leave the park and now it's Sunday? No, you don't think that way. Do you think, well, as soon as the sun came up, that starts the new day, so then they jump in the park and they start doing all the fun stuff and then once the sun begins to peak its... Uh, it's head right back down over the, uh, under the western horizon, then their day is done and they leave the park. You don't think like that. We speak figuratively uh, when we're talking about time. So the idea that they were, they spent the day at Disneyland on a Saturday means that they got there and they spent most of the day at Saturday and uh, it probably means your neighbor's going to have to work some overtime because Disneyland is ridiculously expensive. Uh, but it doesn't mean that they necessarily had to spend every single hour at the park that day. The phrase three nights and three days can very easily be understood as parts of three day-night periods, not necessarily every single hour of three days and three nights. So the traditional timeline still stands. Jesus was crucified and buried on Friday, spent parts of three days in the tomb, and he rose again on Resurrection Sunday. There is a reason that we refer to these Old Testament pictures of the cross as shadows a shadow isn't a perfect match of the object that casts it. It's an echo of sorts, a facsimile of something important to come. The point is that jo Jonah was as good as dead, and he stayed that way for three days. Yet God's divine plan had Jonah live. Not only did Jonah live, but upon rising from his watery grave, Jonah accomplished the gracious task that God had set before him. Jesus is an even greater expression of this in that he actually endured real death. His physical body was entombed within the earth for parts of three days and then he rose to physical life once again to accomplish salvation for God's chosen people. Jesus would not give them another sign from heaven. He would not bring down fire. He would not cause the sun to stop moving across the sky. Because he himself, Jesus, was God incarnate. He was a sign from heaven. And the redeeming power of his death, burial, and resurrection would soon attest to that amazing fact. Do you remember what this wicked generation that Jesus is addressing here in chapter 12 of Matthew, what they ended up doing when they finally did see the sign of Jonah played out in the life of Jesus?
In Matthew chapter 28, it is recorded how they responded. Starting in verse 11. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. Some women had come to the tomb to more properly prepare Jesus' body because it had been hastily prepared the day before. They didn't know how they were going to get in, but when they arrived, they were amazed because an angel had rolled the stone away. The guards were blacked out because of their amazement, and the body of Jesus was nowhere to be found. <coughs> so some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. Verse 12, And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel... They repented and realized that Jesus really was who he said he was. Is that what it says? Oh, that they would have repented that day. But what do we see here? They gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And the story has been spread among the Jews to this day. They asked for a sign. It's not really what they wanted. They didn't want to believe in Jesus. And when the sign of Jonah is revealed to them, they still will not believe. So Jonah's three days in the belly of the great fish points forward as a sign of the three days that Jesus' body would spend in the tomb following his crucifixion. But there is a second parallel in the sign of Jonah, perhaps even a more important parallel. Just as Jonah's mission involved a call to repentance and to judgment, to repentance or judgment, so too does the cross call every man to a similar crisis of repentance or judgment. Jonah had a task, didn't he? His task was to go to a wicked and godless people who lived in Nineveh and show them that there is a true God of judgment, a God who is ready and capable of bringing a swift and complete verdict down from above in condemnation of their sins. If these Ninevites did not repent of their terrorizing ways, if they did not stop ignoring the true God of Israel, if they did not humble themselves before Yahweh and seek His mercy, then the one who gave these Ninevites life would take life away from them. They had 40 days to respond. Ironically, the very reason that Jonah did not want to go to Nineveh was because he didn't want there to be an if between judgment and repentance. He wanted it to be a sure thing. He wanted the nation of Assyria condemned forever and he thought his rebellion would prevent them from hearing their options. Jonah 3, 4 through 5. After he was humbled and taken through the belly of a fish, he knew he had to preach what God had told him to preach. And so Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. Nineveh was a huge city. If you were to walk across, it would take you three days to get across that city. And he called out as he walked into this city, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. How do they respond? Nineveh, as mighty and as terrifying as they may have been to the nations surrounding them, 
to the nations they conquered and put to the sword, they were struck by the reality that there is a God who is so much mightier, a God who is ready to bring judgment on them for their sins, and they feared that God. They put on sackcloth, which was a sign of traditional mourning back then, a sign of feeling sorry that you've done the wrong thing. Not only did the common people do this, but it went all the way to the top, meaning that the king himself made a public display of his repentance. They bowed before the, the Lord God of Israel and asked for, for mercy, for forgiveness. They even covered their animals in sackcloth, which is a little ridiculous. But it showed that they were so afraid of God that they weren't going to leave any stone unturned. They wanted to repent. They, did not, they knew they could not afford to wait that 40 days, so they did it immediately. This aspect of the sign of Jonah is a humbling and serious uh, feel to it. Consider the great contrast that's being struck between the Gentile city that Jonah preached to and the generation of Israelites that were trying to figure out if they would believe Jesus to be their Messiah or reject him as Messiah. Let's look first at Nineveh. In your notes, there's a comparison chart on page two. Let's look at Nineveh first. Did Nineveh have access to the history of God's prophecy? Did the revelation that he had brought through people like Isaiah and Ezekiel and Abraham and Moses, was that available to the Ninevites? No, it was not available to them at all. This was a Gentile nation. They had no good history with God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. Israel, on the other hand, did have that history. They had seen so much of God's truth revealed to them. He wanted them to know his character. He wanted them to know how he desired them to walk. The Ninevites did not have the law of God. They had no prophetic history with God. Did they have a covenant promise with him? No, they did not. The Ninevites were outside of the covenant promise. The Israelites were in the covenant promise, weren't they? They had been given a contractual agreement by God who, who, who made a, a display by walking through the separated pieces of the offering. You remember we talked about that in Genesis chapter 16, I believe? He promised and vowed that he would be their God and they would be his people. And he gave them instruction on how to worship him and how to be identified as separate from the other nations of the world. They were his covenant people, a people of promise. Nineveh had no such promise. Who was their preacher? Who brought this call to repentance to them? A man who didn't even want to be there. A man who did not love them. A man who did not have their best interest in mind, he came shouting condemnation. And I have to believe that he said more than, uh, yet 40 days and, and Nineveh will be destroyed. I'm sure there was more to the sermon. But you know the heart of this man was hardened toward the Ninevites. He did not want to see them turn. This was not the heart of a passionate, loving prophet that preached repentance, yearning for the people to do what was right in the eyes of God. No, this is a man that wanted them all to die. Israel had had some amazing preachers. Israel had some men who were willing to plead with God for, the, for his mercy on them. When, when, when God came to Moses and said, we should maybe start all over again. These Israelites have no appreciation for what has been done. Moses pleads. He says, give them another chance, God. They're foolish. They need to know you better. And God nods in approval and gives them another chance. Ezekiel, Isaiah, these wonderful prophets loved the people of Israel, though they were frustrated with them at times. They preached from a heart that desired repentance, that desired the truth to be told. And yet the only prophet that Nineveh heard was a man who couldn't stand even being in their presence. 
Israel had received signs and wonders. Moses had seen a burning bush. They had been given manna to sustain them for years in the wilderness, heavenly food. They had seen the seas parted so that they might escape from their enemies, the, the Egyptians. They had seen the miraculous and supernatural hand of God. Does Nineveh have any such advantage here? Jonah doesn't perform any sign at all. There is no miracle whatsoever. He simply marches into the city and says, you're all going to die in 40 days if you don't repent. No sign, no miraculous wonder. And yet the, the nation that had all the advantages, Israel, when it comes down to the final verdict, how do they see the Son of God? How do they respond to Jesus Christ? They had every advantage. They had the scripture. They had prophets that loved them and, and poured their hearts out for them. They had seen the signs and the wonders and yet still they rejected Jesus. What a contrast to this nation Nineveh which had no advantages and yet still when the word was preached their hearts turned to repentance. Despite all these advantages the vast majority of the Israelite generation rejected Christ. And they went far beyond rejection, didn't they? They accused him falsely. It was this generation whose high priests would bring Jesus, drag him before proconsuls, and hurl insults and false accusations against him to try to paint him as a, some terrible sinner and some threat to the Roman government. He's falsely accused. He is condemned to death. Not only did they reject him as Messiah, they caused him to be murdered on a cross. The sign of Jonah is not only about the three days parallel. It's about this ultimatum that every human being must face. You need to see that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, will bring judgment onto this earth. If you do not trust in Him and repent, you will be judged in that judgment. In fact, if you are to look at this same story, you know how some of the Gospels, you'll see the story from different perspectives. When Luke tells this story in chapter 11 of Luke, he doesn't even mention the three days in the grave. It's all about Nineveh being warned of the judgment, repenting, and then Jesus telling the people, those Ninevites, those Gentiles, will actually be there in the final day of judgment to judge others, even Israelites who would not receive hope of Messiah. This Old Testament shadow and type of the cross reminds us of something so very important, friends. Regardless of your background, regardless of what you have experienced in this life, regardless of the depth of your sin, regardless of how much you've learned or how much evidence has been laid before you, it all boils down to this. Do you see your sin? Are you humble enough to say, yes, God, I have broken your law willfully I have disobeyed I am a guilty man I am a guilty woman do you know how serious your sin is do you realize that it's not just a burden on society but it is actually an offense to the one who gives life and keeps living things alive are you are you aware of how serious your sin is have you come to realize how powerless you are to overcome your sin do you see yourself as absolutely incapable of washing your own record clean by your own good deeds do you see that justification can only come from the gracious, generous hand of a God who loves you? And will you trust that God to redeem you through the work of Jesus Christ?
That question must be answered by every human being who walks this earth. After Jesus died on the cross, he rose again on the third day, and then he made a series of appearances to his disciples to show them that the resurrection was no hoax, that it wasn't just in their heads. He wanted to show them that he physically was alive. And in one of those appearances, he came to the disciples. There were 10 of them gathered in the upper room, and it was locked. They were afraid that the the Roman government was going to come after them because of their association with Jesus. So they were locked up tight. And then they look around, and suddenly Jesus is standing in the room with them. So he's supernaturally in the room, but he's there physically. He shows them that he's real. And they don't know what to think. They're, They're blown away. And he talks to them for a short time, and he leaves. And Thomas who is the 11th disciple, who is not there with them, he shows up. And they say, Thomas, you won't believe what happened when you were gone. We saw the risen Jesus. He came and walked with us. He talked with us. He's alive. And Thomas said, I I can't believe it. I won't believe it. I I can't accept this until I physically put my hands into the holes that the stakes made in Jesus' hands. And until I put my hand into his side, I cannot believe that Jesus is really alive. That's too risky for me to even, to even entertain the thought. So eight days go by before Jesus again appears to these disciples. And this time they're all together. And Thomas is there. An omniscient Jesus who knows all things, knows Thomas's concerns, walks straight to Thomas and he takes his hand and he says, here, put your hand in my hands. Put your hand into the holes in my side and see that I truly am risen, that I have had victory over sin and death. And how does Thomas respond to this? He says, my Lord and my God. He knows he's not just dealing with a prophet here. He's dealing with God in the flesh. And he makes this powerful, committed confession that he knows that Christ has defeated sin and death. And here we see in John 20, verse 29, Jesus said to him, after he put his his hands in the holes and confessed that Jesus really was alive, Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You know who Jesus is talking about there? You. If you are a believer in the New Testament church, you do not have the advantage of having lived through the time when Jesus is making blind men see and causing lame men to walk. You've not seen the various miracles and signs and wonders that were so prevalent in the time of Acts, in that time of transition. But you have been given a record of the testimony, haven't you? You have been given God's word and you have read and someone has preached to you that this Jesus truly is the Son of God. And now the decision is in your hands. Will you believe that Jesus is who he says he is? Will you put your trust in this one that God has sent to redeem all of his people from their sin and put them into a right relationship with him? God still has miraculous power, but we are in a time period where the way that God has chosen to reveal himself to us is by his written word, by the testimony of truth. Will you humble yourself before him and believe? I pray that your heart will be like Nineveh and not like the stubborn generation who refused to receive the mercy that God had provided in his son, Jesus Christ.
Would you take a moment and pray with me as we conclude and reflect on what we've learned? God, we are so very grateful for the things that you teach us and for the truth that you have recorded in the pages of your Holy Scripture. Father, many of us have probably wondered at one time or another, if God would just send me a sign, I would, I would be able to trust him. I'd be able to overcome my doubts and my fears. And Lord, we see from this story, from this amazing Old Testament example and how it was related to the New Testament, that's not necessarily the case, Lord God, that we are called to be a people of faith, a people who don't get every answer, a people who must lovingly put our hand in your hand and allow you to guide us like a father guides his child. Would you give us the courage to do just that? Father, if, if we look at the record of your scripture, there have been enough signs. There's been enough evidence that you are who you say you are. The very fact that you have preserved your word so perfectly over the ages as evidence, as a miraculous sign that you are who you say you are and you will accomplish your will. And so I do pray, Lord God, that those of us who have trusted you will be encouraged by these things, that we will learn to have greater faith in you by the examples that were poured forth in your scripture today. And for those who may be here today and do not yet trust you, Lord God, they have not yet said, yes, I will put my faith and hope in you alone. I pray that today would be the day of salvation for them. Help them to, like, like Nineveh did, say, yes, God, I don't want your judgment. I want your love. Allow me to be in your family, God. I trust the work that Jesus did for me. God, help us to rejoice in your salvation and help these elements, the Lord's table, uh, double our joy today as we reflect on the work that Christ did. We pray this all in his holy name. Amen.